lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Monday. Hope you had a great weekend. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show. Live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace alongside, that's me, alongside Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre, and all of you. Let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. That's Steve at SteveDace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. You can also look for me on MeWe, Parlor and Gab. Just look for Steve Dace there. And if you're looking for clips of the program, go to rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show. Again, that's rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show. We've got a jam-packed show lined up for you today. Coming up here next hour, we were granted permission to share with you excerpts of an interview one of the top medical scientist researchers in this country recently did in Dallas, Texas. His name is Dr. Peter McCullough from Baylor University. I have not watched this interview. I wanted to react to it in real time as part of our Monday town hall next hour. Todd, you have. Yes. You have selected the clips that I will be reacting to. I narrowed it down and then Aaron narrowed it down further for the amount of time we had because... The cup ran a th- you, It blew my mind. There's I'm not, not enough time, man. Being as familiar with his work as I am, I am not surprised. But I thought it would be fascinating if this time I didn't know what he was what he was talk what he was going to say, and just reacted in real time to the clips that you guys have chosen. So we're going to do that in our Monday town hall. And for those of you that want to know why, I'll just let me just add a little local color into how much esteem. Uh, I, I put this individual's work. I mean, he's testified before Congress and everything else before. Um, a, a personal friend of mine um, who was struggling uh, getting out, getting over being bedridden with COVID for going on a second week. And I, I went to a mutual friend of ours that all of you probably know, my colleague Daniel Horowitz, and said, hey, can you think of anybody that could maybe do some kind of uh, telehealth or informal constant consultation with our buddy here um, because clearly he's not getting a lot of great medical care. And Daniel brought someone in to take a look at our, our friend's uh, individual uh, case. That somebody was Dr. Peter McCullough. Within the span of a couple of days... Our friend, our friend was up out of bed for the first time and going on a second week. Fevers were gone, everything else. So I can't give Peter McCullough a better endorsement beyond we, we put his own expertise to work, Daniel and I did, with a personal friend of ours who was struggling with COVID symptoms. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good recommendation to justify giving this guy an, an hour of showtime next hour, don't you think? I think so. I think that's pretty good. All right, so we're going to find out what he has to say about COVID, the vaccines, the last year, everything else, coming up next hour of the show for the Monday Town Hall. At the bottom of this hour, our good friend and fellow researcher, Phil Kirpin, will be joining us. About that... Uh, CDC claiming our ICUs are overfloweth with uh, pubescence and adolescence right at the time they're trying to get those kids to take all the vaccines. I'm sure it's a coincidence. Uh, we're going to look at what the data actually says about that. And we'll get an update from Phil, who's very pro-COVID vaccine for adults overall. 
we'll get an update from him on what the latest COVID vaccination data is around the country as well. That is coming up at the bottom of the hour. But before we get to all of that, here is Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by The Walls Are Closing In. According to a bombshell report from the UK Daily Mail, not only was it Dr. Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases that gave money to EcoHealth Alliance, who then turned around and gave that money to the Chinese for likely gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, EcoHealth Alliance also received $39 million from the Pentagon between the years of 2013 and 2020. The story cites independent researchers who claim the organization has received more than $123 million from the U.S. government in total. As a tangent, when you look up EcoHealth Alliance to see if they took federal loans through the Paycheck Protection Program, they did about $1.5 million worth. Dr. Anthony Fauci, feeling the pressure turn up, had this to say to MSNBC's Rachel Maddow. What is the thread going through what's happening now is very much an anti-science approach. So that's a big, big difference. I mean, it is what it is. I'm a public figure. I'm going to take the arrows and the slings. But they're just they're fabricated. Uh, and, and that's just what it is. But we'll we'll, we'll just have to. Do our jobs. Jen Psaki, your thoughts? Can you imagine any circumstance where President Biden would ever fire him? No. Speaking of Jen Psaki, she went on Brian's Stelter show on CNN to answer the tough questions. Busy summer ahead, infrastructure, election reform. What does the press get wrong when covering Biden's agenda? On the topic of tough questions, it seems like researcher Christian G. Anderson has had enough of them. You'll recall that Anderson was one of the individuals involved in a FOIA'd Fauci email back in late January of 2020, saying he was concerned, along with other researchers, that SARS-CoV-2 was engineered and not what one would expect from a natural evolution of coronaviruses. Fauci responded to that email saying, thanks, Christian. Talk soon on the call. On that very same day, Anderson tweeted a response to Senator Tom Cotton floating the idea that the virus may have originated in a lab, calling it, quote, completely flawed and wrong. Anderson has subsequently deleted his Twitter account. That's not suspicious at all. In other suspicious coronavirus news, Alameda County, California, has implemented new criteria to essentially determine whether people died with or from the virus over the past 15 months. After applying the new criteria retroactively, the county found a decrease in fatality figures from the virus, not by 2%, not by 5%, but by 25%. Try doing this around the rest of the country. Moving on, it's Monday, so naturally this means Minneapolis, Minnesota is on fire once more. Winston Smith Jr. was being pursued by federal marshals Thursday evening, serving a warrant for Smith, a felon, for possessing a firearm while being a felon. Smith opened fire on the marshals, who returned, killing him. Antifa and Black Lives Matter took to the streets once more. But we're holding space, obviously, for... I'm, I'm not going to lie, I forgot his name, but like... Winston Smith. Winston, Winston Smith, thank you. Protests persisted through the weekend. In New York, a psychiatrist named Aruna Kilanani was invited to Yale University a few weeks ago to give a talk titled The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind, where she said stuff like this. The white people are out of their minds and they have been for a long time. I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, daring their body, and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless. With a gun on my chest, like I did the world of 
Speaking of psychopaths, Twitter public policy tweets, quote, We are deeply concerned by the blocking of Twitter in Nigeria. Access to the free and open internet is an essential human right in modern society. We work to restore access for all those in Nigeria who rely on Twitter to communicate and connect with the world. Twitter was blocked in Nigeria after the company censored a tweet by President Muhammadu Buhari. And finally, we'll do something Joe Biden didn't do yesterday and commemorate D-Day, the largest conventional warfare operation in modern history and the largest seaborne invasion in human history, which left more than 10,000 Allied troops dead and marked the turning point in the war against Nazi Germany in the European theater. The BBC interviewed 96-year-old Hilly Billinge, one of the last surviving D-Day heroes of Britain, about that day and the men he knew. When I learned it was hell... I've never seen anything like him in life. Uh, you had the ships firing over your head, and you had the Germans firing you from inland. 88 millimeter guns they used, which would blow you off the face of the earth. And don't say I'm a hero. I'm no hero. I was lucky. I'm here. All the heroes are dead, and I'll never forget them as long as I live. All I know is, normally veterans, Love one another beyond the love of women. If you was in a hole in the ground with a boat, you got to know him. Marvellous men. My generation saved the world. And I'll never forget any of them. And that's what happened while we were away. Wow. I don't know how to segue out of that. I had no idea that was coming, never do, but I'm overwhelmed at the yeah, moment. I don't, I don't I don't know what to We don't uh, make them like that anymore. No. No they don't. Um you know the average American has maybe up to 100 points they can add to their credit score but no idea how to obtain them. That's why you want to check out the new data scientist at Scoremaster. They have cracked the code on how you can maybe get faster approval for loans uh, that maybe you currently can't get approved for, or even uh, bigger discounts and lower interest rates on repayment options, even if you can get uh, approved right now, because that's what Scoremaster does. They take your credit data and put it in your hands, not the bank's hands, the lender's hands. It's your life. It's your data. You should be in control of it. And that's why when you get in control and you see exactly why you have the score you have and then exactly how you can get the score you want, that's why the average credit score, uh, credit master user can raise their credit score about 30 points in just about a week. Uh, maybe another 40 points in a couple of weeks. Scoremaster is easy to use. Takes just about a minute. Uh, you can go to Scoremaster for free right now. Give it a shot. That's right. Try it for free right now. See how many plus points you can add to your credit score when you go to scoremaster.com slash Steve. That's scoremaster.com slash Steve. Coming up in the overtime today, our good friend Jordan Schachtel will be joining us because he has put forth a premise we want to discuss. And his premise is that Ron DeSantis basically single-handedly saved America from COVID, Stan, because of what he did over the past year plus in Florida. We will get into that uh, today in the overtime. And again, uh, if you are not yet a Blaze TV subscriber, you'd like to become one so that you don't miss the overtime or any of the other exclusive content we do each day for you here at Blaze TV. Just go to blazetv.com slash dace. 
D-E-A-C-E, blazetv.com slash Dace. Get a discounted subscription there today, and that's also where you can go to watch this later. We will record it right after today's program, then upload it for you later today at blazetv.com slash Dace. Let's get to what is in the overtime. Um, Aaron connected some dots for you about the Pentagon funding the EcoHealth Alliance who did the gain-of-function research. Uh, last night, I think it was, I saw the clip this morning, but I think his show airs on, is it Sunday, Steve Hilton on Fox News? I think so, yeah. Um, put forth, I mean, he has done some outstanding work on this, by the way, for the better part of the last year. And when I mean the this, let me specify, itemize, specifically the chain of events of what was going on in the Wuhan lab. In fact, we cite him fairly liberally in our own chapter of Fauci and Bargain, the chapter titled The Wuhan Lab. But he connects even more dots, flat out claiming, and he doesn't mince any words, that Anthony Fauci lied before the U.S. Congress uh, just a month ago in his testimony directly denying any involvement with gain-of-function research uh, to Senator Rand Paul. One of the things that Hilton also puts into his report, uh, and if you haven't seen this video, I tweeted it out earlier today. The video is on Twitter. That's why I haven't shared it in other places. Uh, but I tweeted it out earlier today at Steve Day Show. If you have access to Twitter, you can see it there. But uh, Hilton also has excerpts of a speech that Fauci gave in 2012, right before Christmas of 2012 advocating for gain-of-function research, even describes what it is, that they may indeed cause a virus to mutate in order to study it. He even describes various components of what it is, and then um, the speech that he gives is very much in favor of it. Now, one thing that I think has not been done yet is... There's all this focus on the gain-of-function research, and, and there should be. I, I, this is not a case of misplaced priority from conservative media for a talking point, something we have lamented on our show for years. This is, this is the right pressure point to be looking at, to try to trace back what happened at the Wuhan lab and who knew and when they knew it, okay? But I think, though, it, while it is the right place for us to plant a flag— we need to make sure we're asking broad enough questions. Gain of function is a process. It is a methodology. What you want to know is the motivation for doing it. Because if I don't know what the motivation is for you utilizing this, like let's, let's put this in, it, it, it's not a perfect analogy because a gun can't go off on its own, right? right. Okay. But are guns dangerous? Yes. Generally, yes. Uh, that's, they were made to be a danger. Now they were made to be, now they, but can they be wielded as a danger for good or for evil? Correct? Yes. All right. But the gun is the method, correct? Yes. When a gun goes off, someone is or is not charged with a crime on the basis of their motivation for setting it yes. off, right? Yes. So the gun is the method. Yes. All right. Um, it, it, but, it, but 
And, and while it's right to study rates of gun crime, self-defense, whether gun control works, all those things, it's not really, it, it is proper, but it's not fully sufficient, right? Absolutely. We need to know the motivation in each of these cases because it's the motivation that tells us if that was self-defense. It's the motivation that tells us if that was a gun crime, right? And it's the motivation that tells us that gun control doesn't seem to work anywhere we try it. Therefore, we question your motivation yes. for why every time someone obtains a gun illegally or walks into a movie theater or some other gun-free zone and opens fire, why your gun control didn't work. And yet that's your first default setting. Every time there's one of these tragedies is to research a method or a policy or a practice that we know doesn't do anything to persuade ill motivations. See where I'm going with this? Absolutely. Okay. Gain of function is the weaponization here. It's the weapon in my analogy. All right. Now, it's a little bit different because you can do everything right and with the right motivations. I would argue this is more dangerous than a gun because you could do everything right with gain of function and the right motivations and still because of the nature of the action in and of itself, do something cataclysmic you don't intend to do, right? Yes. Yes. Like I can put a safety on my gun, I can keep a gun in my home and have it unloaded, right? Okay, there, there's there's statements I, or, or there's there's methods I can deploy for my gun to not be nearly the danger um, that it was intended to be, right? Yes. Yes. Gain of function research in and of itself is a danger. Because even if you do all of those things, a virus is a live organism. A gun is an inanimate object. So you can put all the precautions and everything. It, you can even have a situation where the guy running the Wuhan lab wasn't the former head of the Chinese bioweapons program, which he was. But you can have all of those things and still have issues because ultimately you are deploying a live organism, right? Yes. And this is why you had numerous universities, including Johns Hopkins, go to the Obama administration about a year or two, I think it was, I think it was 2014 after, so two yes. years after Fauci gave the speech and said, hey, we got to ixnay on this stuff. I mean, I, even if the motivations are great, just the, the risk here, the, the, the grief to profit ratio, the risk assessment is too high of what we're doing here. But I also think it is important to note what was the motivation here, because that's being largely ignored. A few people have brought, up, brought it up, but I want to make sure we alert you to what the motivation, well, what we thought the motivation for this was. Who knows what the SHICOM's motivation is, and we probably need to discover that, correct? Uh, yeah. Yes. But their motivations here was specifically to measure something called spillover potential. What does that mean? It means the potential of a virus to spill over from an animal to a human. That was what they were specifically trying to measure. And we have that in our book, Fauci and Bargain. They were measuring spillover potential. So we could, this would be dangerous in and of itself. The the virological equivalent of a bikini island or nuclear testing. This would be dangerous in and of itself. But do you think the danger ratio goes up or down? Like if they wanted to study, it would be dangerous letting it out to study how it would react to certain vaccination attempts, 
certain mitigation efforts, right? That yes. would be dangerous in and of itself. But if you're specifically in this case, like imagine the origin of the Incredible Hulk. David Banner doesn't, or Bruce Banner doesn't just accidentally run out into the field where they're doing the gamma testing in his original comic origin. But specifically, they inject him with it to see what happens when we put something like this Let's in a human being. study the worst case scenario by creating the worst yes, case scenario. Yes, they were specifically measuring spillover potential. They specifically wanted to know what would prompt the virus to mutate from an animal to a human. With a non-ally. Yes. That's the, by the way, folks, that is the most innocent, innocent explanation. And they were doing this and nothing leaked out. It was all fine and proper. And it just so happened that while they were doing this at this lab, the wet market over yonder had this exact event happen in the natural world, even though they have not been able to trace back the source of this mutation. That is the most innocent explanation. Is while these bats were gnawing on these things in the wet markets, causing the mutation to happen, they were actually working on the spillover potential of the same mutation in a parallel environment in a, in a virology lab in the same community where the wet market had it occurred by chance. That is your most innocent explanation of all of this. So I asked you, what are the odds? What are higher odds? What is more incredulous to believe? That at the same time they were conducting this spillover research in this lab with the head of the former or the former head of the Chinese bioweapons division in charge of the lab. Everything was on the up and up and everything was just totally great. And it just coincidentally. All hell literally breaks loose at a wet market over yonder down the street. Or. The fact that they were doing this spillover potential in the lab led to, at best, an accident of some kind. At worst, something else. I don't know, man. I think the math on that one seems pretty open and shut. Before we went on the air, I saw a story. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, Big Pharma mouthpiece. If you want to know what Big Pharma is thinking, plotting, uh, manipulating, he will. that's his job. His job is to set the edge, as we say in football. His job is to set the edge for Big Pharma, to prepare you for the next. He is the Caesar Flickerman of Big Pharma. He's just not nearly as charismatic as Stanley Tucci is. Yeah! Okay. Um, right before we went on the air, Scott Gottlieb, well, I was told that Anthony Fauci briefed world leaders last spring that the virus may have escaped from a lab. Uh-oh. Indeed. Oh-oh, indeed. Hmm. You can see a potential retcon here, can't you? Well, we knew all along it came from the lab. It was leaked from the lab. We didn't want to start a panic. We thought in the midst of a pandemic that we didn't know what it was, 
potentially starting World War III with China. On top of that was a bad idea that we had to get our hands around this thing first and foremost. We were even being told by Fauci that it may have sprung from a lab, which means, of course, that it may not operate according to our natural processes or precedents. So we had to treat it differently, behave differently, try methods that we previously had ruled out in the hopes that anything we would deploy would work against this thing, the old Swiss cheese defense. Can't you kind of see this one coming? Yeah. As a potential retcon sometime in the next, I don't know, 30 or 180 days. Couldn't you see a retcon of something of that nature? And that's, by the way, why you all need to get the vaccine because your natural immunity may not hold up because it's not a natural process. It's not a natural phenomenon. So we don't know. Can't you can't you see that potential retcon to close the plot hole known as known as one Anthony Fauci once and for all? Can't you see that one coming? It's as even odds as anything else. What if we did to the rest of the country what they're doing out there in Oakland, Alameda County right now? Where one out of four, actually a little bit more than one out of four deaths attributed to COVID should not have been. You know what I think about this? I've said it not loud. If, if we did this sort of audit, coding, calculation, uh, reassessment, if we did this nationwide, what do you think we'd find? We're talking about the same issue as you just buttoned up. It's about mo- what are the motivations? What were the motivations? We must know the motivations yes. here. I, I was saying this to a friend of mine. Um, well, I'll just say I was saying it to my friendship, Roy, member of Congress. Normally, I would not be harping. I said, brother, normally I'd not be harping on somebody like you. We got to get to the motivations. Because in the end, whether it's malfeasance or malevolence, as we often see on our show, the end result is often the same, correct? Mm-hmm. But I think in this case, uniquely, we must know the motivations. We must know. Because that the motive to me is, is, is the play is, the motive is the thing in which we'll catch the conscience of the king. We must know the motivations for this. Because that's how we'll have some form of a plumb line of how to assess this. Like quietly last week, China said, you know, we got a new bird flu. It's okay. We caught it early. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Gee. All right. So they, they, I mean, the spirit of the age saw us not only roll over, but assume the position, uh, perform uh, acts of for unlawful carnal knowledge uh, on, on its behalf over the scare of a virus. Correct. I, the idea that the spirit of the age is just going to look at that and say, oh, don't run that you know, playbook back again. That's like saying, I will not go to Dairy Queen for a blizzard all summer long. That's going to happen. They're going to run this playbook back again because yes. it worked so well this time, correct? Yes. So then we need some kind of plumb line to know when is it really time to take something seriously or not. The only way I can think of for the average person to acquire that knowledge is for us, because we are dealing with a level of expertise beyond the average person, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we must know the motivations that were at play here in this particular case so that we know then how we can test the spirit of the age in the future. I think that's a reasonable calculation. Yeah. And so what do I think we'd find? Well, when you're dealing with a level of psychosis that still exists and is evident in the John Rahm incident this weekend, Steve, which no yes. doubt you know about. Yes. Now you take that level of preposterous nonsense a virus, it's coming, but let me go out into the open air and stand right next to you and not be worried about it at I all know, and just I get know, the theater. Now apply that, yes, to the entire last year and a half. What do you think you're going to find, Steve? I have been hesitant about hammering the PGA 
because they were the first sport to come back last year. They were the first sport to try something. They had a positive test, remember, right away. And everybody shut it down, shut it down. They're like, no, we're still playing the event this weekend. Remember about, you know, a little yes. more than a year ago. And so I kind of feel like clubbing them now, no pun intended, but clubbing I'm them not- now might be a little bit, po- but, but doesn't that also then say they should also then have known better to this then? Because yes. they've been down this road. They've done yes. this They've done this rubric. They know how, where it ends. They've calculated this all out. We all saw the, the massive crowds in South Carolina at the PGA Championship two weeks ago and how scintillating that was and the mob all over Phil Mickelson, correct? Yes. So you would think, therefore, while I'm hesitant to just jump on them because they were out there taking the leadership on this last year when a lot of other sporting events, I mean, also played outdoors. Major League Baseball took forever to get its house in order, Right. That also then doesn't, you, doesn't that then say they should have known better than this silliness? Then fine, have him golf by himself, carry his own bag or something then if you're that, if you're that worried or that concerned but, about it. But the theater's that important uh, to, to everybody. Just like most of us know, though, he's not sick. And asymptomatic spread isn't a thing. And this is all done for the theater. Right? The same applies to COVID for the last year and a half and dying with versus dying of. It was theater the entire time. And not nearly the, what is it? Where are we, Steve? 600,000 American deaths? Yes. Something? Ad- yeah. No. No. no I no, don't believe there have been 600,000 American. Do I believe that we've had in the hundreds of thousands somewhere? Could be 175, could be 250, could be 345. I don't know. I just, I'm pretty confident though that it's not 600,000. Because it's absurd as this John Rodham incident to believe otherwise. Our good friend Josh Hammer sent me a note on Twitter that he was getting some pushback about a column he wrote in Newsweek and references our book and yes. talking about pushback against masks. And and he sent me the guy, the commentator's pushback against him. Well, it was never, it was never said that masks were going to protect you as a wearer. And I sent Josh the link. I said, oh, yes, Josh, it was, brother. The former head of CDC, Robert Redfield, last August testified before Congress yes, that did. the cloth mask would protect him more from COVID than the vaccines would. We'll look at some of that vaccination data with our good friend Phil Kirpin when we come back. We've been talking about rough greens on the show for a couple of years now, and it's that supplement powder that you sprinkle in with your dog's store-bought food to put all the good stuff, vitamins, minerals, nutrients, pre, probiotics, likely missing from your pet's food, stripped when it left the factory so it would last long on the shelf and be mass distributed. Same thing they do with the people food we eat. That's why we take so many supplements these days. Uh, But you may be wondering, hey, if I put this into my dog's food, will will it like it? Will my dog go for it? Well, there's one way to find out, and now you can do it for free. We'll give you the bag for free. You pay for the shipping, but that 14-day Jumpstart bag that we always encourage you to, to, to try with your pet to see if you don't see a difference in your pet in 14 days or less, now you will get that bag for free. You just pay for the shipping, so it won't cost you anything but a couple of bucks for shipping to find out if that is a good fit, good fit for your pet. Our dog, Cap, loves it. Maybe yours will or won't, but here's the way that you can find out because it certainly needs it. Roughgreens.com is where you can go to get the free 14-day Jumpstart bag. Again, you just pay for the shipping. R-U-F-F for roughgreens.com or call them at 833-ROUGH-DOG. Again, 
That's 833-ROUGH-DOG. Well, he's been one of our go-to researchers here on the show for the better part of the last year. Phil Kirpin is the chairman or is the president of American Commitment. He joins us now here on the Steve Day Show. Good to have you back, Phil. It's been a little while. How you been, brother? Uh, pretty good. How are you? You know me, man. Uh, uh, keep hope alive. That, that's what we do here on the Steve Day Show. So let, let's start with um, the, the latest scare tactic uh, from CDC that we got uh, late last week. Uh, Rachel Walensky, the woman who told us a few months ago that she had an impending feeling of doom and then said, I'm not reading off a script. Let me throw the script away. And then cases have gone down in America, 79%, by the way, since uh, she gave that talk. Uh, She's back at it again. And raise your hand, by the way, if you were surprised that CNN was the media outlet that leapt to their defense to help them spread this. No one? Okay, I'll show myself out. Anyway, uh, this is that we've now got to vaccinate all these kids because our ICUs runneth over with adolescents, Phil. What's the data, including their own data at CDC, actually show about this claim? Uh, It's completely false. And Steve, what they did here is they basically uh, took data from the spring sort of mini wave that we had, which was sort of... Uh, mostly in the Northeast and some in the Midwest that uh, had pretty bad in Michigan, uh, but pretty mild everywhere else. Um, they said, let's let's look at the data just from this spring sort of mini wave that we had, uh, and let's look at the adolescents only during that period, but cut it off right at the peak. So they made the the you know sort of that wave. They cut it off right at the peak, so the endpoint would be sort of the top of that mini wave. And then they said, look at how they're rising. And they didn't put it in, uh, in, they took it out of context in two ways. One is they didn't show that the adolescent hospitalization increase during that wave was significantly lower than for other age groups. It was following, you know, the more vulnerable age groups rising much more than the slight rise that we had in that adolescent group. But they didn't show you the all ages at all in that study. Uh, and they also didn't show you that it's already come down all the way back down uh, and then some and we're at a very, very low level right now. So you take this sort of out of context, you show just this rising line. You don't say this trend peaked uh, a month and a half ago and reversed substantially since then. You also don't show that it was less of an increase uh, than other age groups. And by doubly taking it out of context, you get that screaming CNN headline oh my God, the adolescents are seeing this rise in hospitalization. So it was extremely dishonest. Actually, a third way it was dishonest, Steve, is that uh, 45% of the COVID hospitalizations in their study were people who were in the hospital for a completely unrelated reason that just happened to test positive in the surveillance testing that they do in hospitals. Oh, that's almost so half. really a triple, triple lie. Yeah, that's almost half of the, the cases they cited, Phil. Yeah. That's almost half. That's that's Correct. that's that's not a we last, brother. I mean, that that's quite the inflation. So, I mean, this this they have been a ridiculous proposition. I've seen you tweet this a few times, and I've chuckled each time I've seen it. It was hard to believe that the Biden administration was going to come up with somebody worse at this than Robert yeah. Redfield, but they did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the Robert Redfield looks like Albert Schweitzer right now, Phil. Let's be this honest. Better than a vaccine. Yes. You thought, you thought this is the worst. You thought no yes. one can ever be worse than this guy. But but honestly, uh, Walensky's worse. I mean, she's just a total disaster, a wreck. Uh, you know, he, you know, the, you know, Redfield was bad in two ways. One was his crazy mask obsession. And of course, we still have that going on even now. And I'm not sure they'll ever admit that the mask didn't work, even though all of the data show that. 
Um, but the other one thing that, that was really bad with Redfield is he could never get a handle on the bureaucracy in any way. So he would go out and give a speech and say, all the schools should be open. Mm-hmm. And then the bureaucrats would post, you know, here are 19 whatever that are going to keep them closed. And so he never got a handle on his own bureaucracy. Uh, the rank and file CDC people never really responded to him. Uh, so he was sort of incompetent in that way or in, incapable of exercising control over his agency, I guess would be a better way to describe it. With Walensky, you've got someone who is essentially, you know, one of the idiot bureaucrats in charge. Mm. So she's in perfect consonance with the agency. Uh, and I think that we can see that that's actually even worse than having somebody sort of fail to get control of it. To me, the turning point for her happened early on. And remember, she had gone on Maddow's show like the first week or so of the Biden administration, which is their version of a Tucker, frankly. I mean, in terms of the magnitude of, of Rachel's audience within their ranks and, and said, hey, all the schools should be open. We can discuss mitigation options within the schools themselves, but all the schools should be open for in-person uh, learning. And after she said that, man, the, the teacher unions and everybody else came down harsh. And so and she, she and did. The White House said, you remember this, Steve? The White House said she was speaking in a personal capacity. Yes. And then about, it was about a week or so later, they came out with the, that ridiculous map. And Todd and Aaron are my witnesses. I said to them, the day that map came out, I said, this will be the turning point against COVID stand because this is so ridiculous. It so defies common sense. It was the map that said the only place in America in the dead of January that it was actually safe to go to school in person and have extracurricular activities was International Falls, Minnesota. Do you remember this coverage right. map they yeah, put out? One blue square yes. at the very top. Of the yes. Map. And yeah, look, I mean, go the ahead. red on that map, the red on that map, they were recommending schools be closed and all sports be virtual only. Mm-hmm. Okay. And red was like 90%, 95%. Yeah. So places like Iowa, Florida, Georgia, Nebraska that have been playing youth sports since last June, July, August, suddenly it's now, and, and, and those parents at all these places, they went to those games. They went to those oh, events. Also, they, how about the kids, how about the kids who play spring sports who lost their whole season last year? Right. And then they watched and then they watch the fall and winter sports all play. Yep. And then they're seeing CDC say, no, you should lose another season of <laughs> yes. sports. Yes. I mean, so, Phil, how much of this was just transparently because the data shows that after an initial wave of people signing up for it, and that's the, uh, the emergency authorization now for COVID vaccination for adolescents. After that initial wave, the data shows they had about a 60% drop in people signing up for youth vaccination in the second, the following week. And they've hit a stumbling block now where we might end up with a third to 40% of Americans that never get this. They can't figure out how to incentivize it. Vaccine passports, except for in about three states, uh, are just politically not a viable entity. They are, they're offering, West Virginia tried guns, maybe that'll work, I don't know, but they're offering cash and everything else. So how much of this was just a thinly veiled attempt to try to break through the wall that they're currently seeing in youth vaccination? Well, I think that's entirely what it is. Uh, And I think that uh, there's a certain pathetic desperation uh, that we're seeing right now from the government aid entities and the, uh, and the, you know, sort of vaccine promoters. And what doesn't make sense to me is they should be declaring victory. Look, we've got 85% of seniors fully vaccinated. Mm -hmm. That's where almost all of the severe uh, burden of this disease is. Uh, let's not obsess about people who are extremely low risk choosing or not choosing to to get this vaccine. Let's declare victory and say and you know declare 
the pandemic's over and, and move on would be the logical thing to do. It's like they, they're incapable of, they don't want to win. They're incapable of just taking the win and moving on. And so, you know, look, it's what's interesting to me, Steve, is when you look at the vaccine data, even despite all of the misinformation and the confusion and the nonsense that we've seen, people are really sort of supremely rational about this. Uh, people who are very old are overwhelmingly getting the vaccine and you sort of go down the age distribution and the uptake and the interest in it declines and you sort of you get to young people and there's not that much. Well, that makes sense. That means people are actually paying attention uh, to the relative risks and younger people are saying, you know, I, I don't need the vaccine. That's actually not illogical. That's logical. And instead of browbeating them and trying to incentivize them in every possible way, we ought to be saying, look, everyone who wants the vaccine has it now. We're, we should have 100 percent normal life and people make their own decisions. That's a good thing. So what do you, you I know you study this vaccination data. I've seen you. I've been following you. You've been keeping up with it. Give our audience sort of a big picture view. What do you see in terms of its efficacy, effectiveness, countermanded with the risk assessment? Well, I think the vaccines are highly effective, uh, and we've now got a lot of real-world real world data backing up uh, the clinical trials. Uh, they're probably not in, real, in the real world, the 90% plus that we saw in the trials, but they're probably somewhere in the high 70s, uh, which is very, very good. Uh, for a vaccine, and uh, when you say effective, do you mean with trans with with transmission or with mitigation against serious illness? I'm preventing. I mean, in preventing severe disease and death. Okay. Uh, the transmission effect uh, is probably about fifty percent uh, from what we've seen in the UK studies. We don't have great data on that, but there definitely is an effect on reducing transmission as well. Uh, that said. The, really the most important thing is the effect on reducing severe disease and death because if you have a vaccine that's effective for that then the people who are at risk of severe disease and death can get the vaccine substantially take that risk off the table and from a societal standpoint you've really kind of solved the problem and so i do think the vaccines are effective now they obviously have side effects uh, not the least of which is you know 70 or 75 percent of the people get a fever and chills and headache and that kind of thing after the second dose. So it's much more uh, than we typically accept with other vaccines. You're probably going to be down sick for a day after that second dose. Not everyone, but but a lot of people. And, you know, if you're talking about someone who's very young, that might be as bad as COVID, uh, frankly, uh, in itself. And then there, there are also these other rarer issues, in particular for young men. We're now seeing heart issues, heart involvement. Uh, particularly after the second dose, and it looks like Israel's going to actually change their recommendation to be only one dose uh, mm. for young people or certainly for, for younger men. Uh, and so, you know, there are definitely side effects and trade-offs, and especially as you get away, get lower in age, uh, those begin to potentially outweigh the benefits. And that's why I think uh, you're seeing, you know, the uptake decline a lot with age, because of course the virus risk is dramatically uh increases with age. And in fact, uh, one of the calculations I did is, is I sort of said, look, you know, let's assume the best possible number anyone's ever claimed for the vaccine, which is 97% effective. And let's compare an unvaccinated child to a 97% risk reduced vaccinated adult. And if you do that, uh, the risk for an unvaccinated child is still lower than the 97% reduced adult risk for everyone age 30 and up. And mm. it's 100 times lower 
than a vaccinated person 75 and up. And so those pictures of Biden at the White House with a little boy masked next to him are really unconscionable, no matter, no matter how effective you think the vaccine is, uh, the child is still lower risk uh, than the vaccinated adult. And so, you know, I think uh, that, that's kind of how I look at it and think about it. Now, of course, Steve, as you know, the other reason a lot of people don't want these vaccines is with a new technology, it's not just the known risks of the side effects we're seeing, but it's also, you know, what unknown risk might there be in the long term, if any. And of course, we all hope that there will not be any. And I think that, you know, for older people, the long term unknown is less of a concern. Uh, But I think that's why a lot of younger people say, look, I'm not really at risk for this disease. Why why take on any Mm -hmm. unknown risk? And I think that's why a lot of people are passing. My view is uh, that basically, you know, I think most people age 50 and up probably should get the vaccine. Age 30 to 50, you know, your risks are relatively low either way. Uh, it's sort of a judgment call. Under 30, I think it's probably not a good idea. That's that's kind of where I am based on the data that we have now. Phil, great stuff. Uh, been following your work. We've had you on the show numerous times. You've been a big help uh, for, for team sanity here uh, over the last year and a half. What's the best place for people to go to keep up with what you're doing? Well, I'll give you two places. One is the uh, daily newsletter that I do with Steve Moore and John Fund, which is totally free. We usually send out around the noon hour and uh, that it's less COVID than it had been. We're, we're getting sort of more into other economic issues and taxes and spending and uh, that kind of stuff. But your audience would probably like the non-COVID stuff just as much because they're conservative and so are we. Uh, that one is committee to unleash prosperity.com if you want to sign up for that. Uh, and the other thing is I'm a bit of a Twitter addict, so I'm on there more or less all the time. And that's my last name, uh, Kerpen, K-E-R-P-E-N. Great work, Phil. Thank you, brother. Take care, all right? All right. Have a good one. You too. So was this a good dad move or not? You know, we've been, uh, Raycon has been uh, one of our partners on the show for the last few months. And uh, my son Noah saw me uh, sporting the Raycons. And he's like, hey, man. Are you really using those? Because those are like the number one earbud brand at school. And I've tried them and they're great. Would you let me borrow them? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to give them to you. Was that a good dad move? Seems so. I thought so too, except now I, I can't get his attention. Oh. I have to scream. Yell. He has them in constantly. Constantly has them in. Listening to something. Constantly. Right? So now I feel almost as if my kindness is being used against me. But I get, at least now you know, by the way, that there is a certain chic aspect to Raycon earbuds. Now you also know that whole noise limiting thing they brag about with the tight fit they have that you have to constantly be adjusting your earbuds all the time with these. Now you know that's a thing. Or at least my son's really good at using that as an excuse. Maybe that that might actually It's so be real, you're finding it irritating. <laughs> it is. Uh, right now, by the way, uh, if you want Raycons for, for you, you want to be a, the cool dad or mom uh, and give them away to your kids, whichever the case may be, 15% off all their products for our listeners right now. When you go to buy Raycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N as in Nancy. R-A-Y-C-O-N. Raycom was a cheesy cable channel that we used to watch 11 a.m. SEC games on or, or, or Wake Forest and NC State when yes, we were we kids. Yes, we did. Wow. Yes, remember that? Raycon is something different, all right? Uh, buy Raycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N, buy Raycon dash uh, slash Steve, buy Raycon.com slash Steve. Go there. You get 15% off anything you want, uh, all their products. 
all of our listeners, 15% off right now at raycon.com slash Steve. So when we come back, one of our leading medical experts in the country, Dr. Peter McCullough from Baylor University, did an interview in Dallas, Texas recently, going in depth on COVID. We're going to share some excerpts of that interview and react and respond for our town hall next. We're back with our two live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre, and all of you. Let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. Steve at SteveDace.com. That's how you can email the show, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Look for me on MeWe, Parlor, and Gab. Just look for Steve Dace there. And also, if you're looking for clips of the program, rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show is where you want to look for those. And we are looking for you. If you are a podcast listener, please hit that five-star review for us, that subscription button as well, or that follow button. I think they've changed it now. Is it now follow instead of subscribe or something? I think I saw last night. Whatever it is, wherever you podcast from, Hit the button that allows us to show up in your feed each day. Uh, Leave us a five-star review. Thank you to all of you that have done those things for us already. I'm told it's beneficial to the show and the Skynet world of algorithms somehow. I, I don't know how that works, nor do I even trust it after what I've seen with my own eyes over the last year plus. But if nothing else... It's very kind feedback for us and the amount of time and effort we put into the show. And and we appreciate those nevertheless, even on a personal level. So thank you. Um, if uh, speaking of not trusting the uh, the algorithm world that is out there, you know, Aaron, you had in your montage uh, Twitter going after the government of Nigeria. Yes. For not allowing uh, people to have access to its platform. Yep. And they even called it some form of a, a, a human right. I believe. Mm-hmm. So as, as my buddy Ted Cruz pointed out, is this Twitter admitting it's denying Donald Trump's human rights then by not allowing him on the platform by their own definition, right? See, he's yes. not human though. <laughs> to them. Yes, you're right about that. But I mean, keep in mind now, this is a, this is a platform, a global platform that has non-disclosed and unaccountable enforcement mechanisms to determine who gets access to its platform and what things get to be said and what things get to be seen, right? Yes. You ever ran into somebody or seen anybody on TV? Twitter enforcement officer. Twitter, ever, do we know who any of these people are? No. We don't. Non-disclosed and unaccountable enforcement mechanisms for a global platform, but yet they dare to have the, the negative integer self-awareness to go out there and say, that the government of Nigeria is denying people their human rights by not giving them access to Twitter. See, that's another example of who we're dealing with, with entities like this. That's why you want to make sure that you protect yourself and your data with the right VPN out there. What is the right VPN for you? Uh, I think it's ExpressVPN. Uh, this is uh, something that's been recognized as number one in the industry. It's the one I use, so you know it's simple. Uh, you just put it on all your various platforms, and with a couple of clicks, you're good to go. Uh, they never buy or sell your data, uh, no matter where you go. And every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers, which makes it harder for third parties to identify you as that needle in the haystack. And best of all, 
Did I mention it was super easy to use? If you really want to go incognito, because incognito mode doesn't necessarily mean what you think it does, uh, and you want to protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN out there. Visit ExpressVPN, V as in victory. ExpressVPN.com slash Steve. Get three extra months for free with a one-year package. Three extra months for free with a one-year package when you go to ExpressVPN.com slash Steve. One of the leading figures, and even though we've never had him on the show so far, uh, and I don't think we've even had a specific conversation about him until now, but I have been aware of his work for several months now. Uh, one of the leading, I think, uh, intellects, expertise when, uh, we, when dealing with sanity and COVID is Dr. Peter McCullough from Baylor University. Uh, I, I, I can't give the guy an, a higher recommendation. I mean, he's testified and stuff before Congress, although nowadays. They let just anybody do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, with all due respect to Peter, I don't know that that means what it has, 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 as much as it used to mean, if you know what I'm saying, yeah. right? Okay. But let me give you this recommendation for Peter. And he probably doesn't even know me. We've never met. But a few weeks ago, uh, a good friend of mine uh, was struggling to get on top of COVID. What had happened is um, he had he had he had been forced in order to compete in an event. He had been forced to be masked for the entire event. It's like the first time he had worn a mask this entire episode. And so, of course, when the event is over, and he takes the mask off. What do you think happens? When he's been uh, rebreathing in that bacteria-riddled uh, air into his mask, the Chinese face diaper that doesn't work, okay? Shortly thereafter, he starts feeling terrible and um, he's positive. Uh, he tried, he, he tried, actually was able to obtain some hydroxychloroquine, but because he was already way, way too symptomatic, he's past the prophylaxis stage. So it it kept him out of a hospital, but little else. I mean, he he struggled for well into a second week, bedridden with fevers and a cough. And this is a healthy individual. So I went to a mutual friend of his and ours, um, our colleague Daniel Horowitz, and said, hey, anybody you can think of in your stable that might be able to help our friend here. He said, I got just the person. And the guy he called in from the bullpen was Dr. Peter McCullough. I can't give him a better recommendation than that, right? Then first person healing. That's yeah, what the whole point went, should have went, been all went along. Went to somebody in my own sphere of influence yeah. and went with what that guy said. Within about 48 hours, my buddy was up out of the bed first time in a, almost two weeks. Fever's gone. And, you know, it's been another week now and week plus now. And he's completely back to normal. So I've seen firsthand what this guy's expertise can do. A couple of weeks ago, he gave an extensive interview in Dallas, Texas. We were given permission to air excerpts of this interview. I made the decision for me not to watch it and have you watch it instead. Normally, we do it the other way around. But this time, I wanted to, since Monday Town Hall is typically when you pick the questions right. I answer, I figured we'd go with that exact same MO and you pick the clips that we're going to be breaking down from this interview. I'm told this interview, it's something, right? Oh. It's a, about an hour, 45 minutes long, and I'm taking up, you know, plenty, plenty there to get into an hour 
Uh, but I failed miserably. Uh, Aaron ultimately helped me edit further because I couldn't edit enough. There There's, was just too much there. There. It, there is too much there. All right. So, Aaron, you have the clips, correct? That is correct. All right. I now will hand it off to you. So we'll just start with some of Dr. McCullough's initial thoughts when he heard about this virus early in 2020. In the beginning, in my clinical practice, I really didn't have any viewpoint about prior viral pandemics. Uh, and some had mentioned uh, prior influenza pandemics. If we go back to the 1300s, there was you know plagues uh, that occurred across Europe. Uh, but point in fact, we were largely and very quickly thrown into emergency mode. And so what happened was a whole series of communications within health systems that really dealt with protection of the doctors and nurses. And Americans were introduced to a term called PPE, or personal protective equipment. And most of our task force meetings and calls really didn't have to do with sick patients. It had to do with protection of the healthcare workers and doctors. So I got a sense early on that fear, group fear, was a major driver in, in behavioral response to the pandemic. Hmm. That's how it starts. That's the beginning. So from the beginning, the premise, and hey, my mom was a nurse growing up. I worked in med stations and hospitals often in summer times or spring breaks growing up, places where she was working. We obviously want those people to be safe. Of course. And they they can't help or heal anybody if they're not safe, right? Aaron, my understanding is you're pretty fond of nurses yourself. Yeah. Yeah, right? Okay. Uh, Happens to be married to one. We want them safe, right? But he seems to be here describing that the singular focus right away was how to keep them safe. We got done talking earlier Instead about motivation. population. And yeah. one of the motivations that we were lied to about, we were all in this together. Does that sound like we were all in this together nope. from the beginning, no, Steve? No, from the beginning, it does not sound like that. No. Let's go to the next clip. So this one, he's talking about how he knew and data was available very early on about who this virus impacted and how. What we learned relatively early is that this illness was clearly and strongly amenable to risk stratification or that baseline risks were very, very strong determinants, even more so than the virus itself for mortality. So what that meant is the strongest determinant of mortality is age. And age itself is an underlying determinant or a cause of death, if you will, in the general population. Then we start adding on the typical things that put people at risk for death of other causes, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes. The interesting thing is that obesity appeared to be a super-loaded factor. Uh, And so the virus uh, seemed to really prey upon patients, particularly who are obese. And there are some reasons for this in terms of how the cytokines and immune factors are generated in response to the virus that could explain it. But we understood quickly that individuals under age 50, for example, with no major medical problems, could ride through this illness very easily. And in fact, the Swedes figured this out very quickly and said, you know what? We're not going to shut down. We can just – this is sufficiently understood that we can simply protect the individuals at risk the best we can, the best that any protection measure can, and then we'll just have our economy and our schools move along in a usual fashion. When we look at the data, 
I think they've actually adjusted it now to 5%. It was 6. I think it's 5 or 6% of those we are counting as deaths with COVID had no pre-existing comorbidity. Meaning they were otherwise healthy. There was nothing in their current medical history that if untreated could have developed into um, something lethal to them. That doesn't mean, as we've explained before, that only 5 to 6% of these deaths are legitimate. That's not what it means, but we've used the example of your own father, that mm-hmm. it says something on his chart that killed him, right? But the, but the overall weakness of a prolonged exposure to a malady like that will do to your immune system can make you... Um, extra vulnerable to of something course. like this. Yes, and and you do see. I think the average amount of comorbidities of a death coded with with uh, with COVID in America is four. Meaning, the average person that that died with COVID in America had four other comorbidities. Something else that the vi- so this is a virus that seeks out those who have weakened immune systems uh, in order to um, in in order to flourish and i think that probably lends itself to the obesity factor because if you're struggling with obesity i have know a little bit about that topic from my past you're pre all the things that dr mccullough just mentioned right mm-hmm. if you're struggling with obesity at 28 like i was or 35 like i was you are you are pre all the things for onset all the things that he eventually talked about that if you don't deal with those things at those ages and you then now you're getting into your 40s 50s and 60s and that obesity is set in and these things then begin to metastasize as comorbidities and i think that lends itself to the age stratification that he describes but i think he made a very important point because if you've been listening to this show for the better part of the last year plus this none of what he just said there is news to you but did you hear when he said we knew this early on And I had forgotten about this until I just heard him say this, and then my memory was jarred. Do you guys remember when I had a little birdie, the White House Coronavirus Task Force, did a call, a conference call during the 30 days to slow the spread. It was the extension into the month of April. And and they did a call with a bunch of nationwide conservative leaders. Do you guys remember this? And one of my best buddies was one of the leaders invited on this private call with Debbie Burks. And this was probably, I'd have to go back, I think I even tweeted about it at the time, mid-April at the absolute latest is when this call took place. Because we were still dealing with, you know, uh, which stores were going to still be open, things of that nature. And, and much of what Burks said in that call is pretty much what he just said right there. In fact, I remember... When she, that one of the things she said on that call was that instead of, um, uh, in, instead of limiting the certain hours were for elderly to come and shop. And she, she was like, actually the better thing for them would be just to have people shop for them because their risk at this is so much higher than everybody else. It's just not even close. Just, you know, have stores set up special you know, delivery systems for the elderly because they're so uniquely vulnerable to this. Mm-hmm. This is why we've been telling you now that all this is coming out and is confirmed, all of this, we knew this, all of it. I promise you, we knew all of it a year ago. 
If you want to say mercy triumphs over judgment, so let's let it play out a little bit longer because we don't trust the shy comms. I would have even been okay with that. It's for example, I get I'm get I'm I'm kind of labeled now and I'm fine with it because it's true. But like I'm the masked avenger or the unmasked avenger, basically. I mean, I'm just out now to just pillory, uh, plunder, um, condemn um, masks as a talisman of the spirit of the age cult, which is true. Was I always that way? No. No. In fact, in fact, it was one year ago this month when the masks were beginning to ascend. And we started asking questions about it because we looked at all the previous data of masks and it showed that they did not work. In fact, one of the sources we cited was Michael Osterholm, current Biden coronavirus advisor who compared it to wearing a screen, uh, putting a screen door on a submarine. But remember, I said, hey, because we still didn't have the confirmation that this was largely an airborne spread contagion. Okay, how about we just offer we'll all wear masks in July? We'll do it for 30 days, reopen everything, we'll wear masks in July, and let's see what that does. Remember I offered that? Yes, you did. As recently as just last summer. So this idea that on our show we've offered no flexibility at all, that you, you, you had to go Sweden day one, you had to have this all figured out by Easter, even by Memorial Day, well into last summer, we were still on this program, even though we had data. We were still offering accommodations because we also wanted to find out who's just overtly afraid of this and their motivations might be good. They're just more cautious than we are. And then who's lying to us, right? Yes. And one way to do that is to flesh out the false objection. Well, now, but understand everything you're being told and confirmed now, we have known this all for a year. This was all true at this time last year. We haven't learned anything new. It's still here we are having to have Phil Kirpin on to remind yes. everybody that if you're 15, yes, a reminder again, you're not in danger of this and you do not need to get vaccinated for it. Correct. Correct. All right, next clip. He says a dangerous group think started to set in pretty early amongst the medical community. We look at other conditions uh, where we readily accept the fact that somebody can fall ill at home, but if we start treatment early with an infection, we can save the patient. That exists for community-acquired pneumonias. It occurs for various forms of staph infection, including staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome. It occurs for diverticulitis and um, abdominal conditions. Uh, it occurs for uh, skin infections, uh, various forms of cellulitis. It occurs for meningitis. And for instance, if someone had a form of meningitis, we wouldn't say, listen, sit at home for two weeks, and then if you're really, really bad and you're having seizures and you can't even breathe anymore, then come in the hospital and we'll start treatment. So the different unique aspect of the medical response to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 was for the first time we had an infectious disease where the medical community settled into a groupthink. And this was supported by the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, the American Medical Association, all the medical societies. It was supported by these societies to tell doctors, don't touch this virus. Let patients stay at home, let them get as sick as humanly possible, and then when they can't breathe anymore, then go to the hospital. In fact, it was shocking October 8th 
when the National Institutes of Health came out with their first set of treatment guidelines. Because prior to that, none of the societies had any treatment guidelines. They actually didn't tell doctors how to treat the illness. Now, there were suggestions about what should be done in the hospital, but Americans cared about what was going on when they got sick at home. And the first set of guidelines said, you get sick at home, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Come into the hospital when you really can't breathe, still don't do anything until a patient needs oxygen. Then start doing something. Like then actually give the first antiviral drug, which was remdesivir. Well, that's 14 days after the virus had already started replicating. By that time, the virus is long gone. When people can't breathe, the problem is micro blood clotting in the lungs. So the, the federal agencies, the CDC, the NIH, and FDA <clears throat> were enormously inept in terms of perceiving what this problem was, incredibly inept in uh, applying any type of judgment or direction to doctors. And what had happened among the doctors was, we're so terribly frightened, we're not gonna do anything unless we have the intellectual support from our associations, from our federal agencies, from our medical societies. And it was just the opposite of what medicine had always been. You juxtapose that with the D-Day veteran that we heard from mm. in the montage today. Exactly. October 8th. October 8th is when they were given guidelines from the feds for treating this. And October even those guidelines 8th. were... Yeah. Folks, we had been eating in restaurants in Iowa since inside, indoors, since May 8th. October 8th. October 8th. More than six months after 30 days to slow the spread expired. October 8th. So you test positive. You're asymptomatic. Go home and isolate to make sure you get no symptoms. Okay, I'm mildly symptomatic, which is what I was. wasn't I wasn't feverish I, at all, but I had I felt like I had like a brick on my chest for about a day. So basically, they just told you just self isolate, I guess, and if you can't read any, breathe anymore, well then you come in, we'll give you the remdesivir or put you on a ventilator. I mean, that's so there was nothing. Do they treat any other respiratory virus this way? There's nothing that can be done until you have the most serious of symptoms. Just go home. If you're, if you're kind of sick, go home and get sicker. Until you show the most serious of symptoms. We have no other treatments for any respiratory, out, any respiratory ailment beyond just once you're mildly symptomatic, don't, we, can't, we have nothing we can do until you get even sicker. Really? Meanwhile, during this time, The Lancet was publishing a discredited study taking down hydroxychloroquine, uh, the memory holing of ivermectin, correct? Yes. The, you know, in the past, in the past, we have had to rein medical science in from doing crazy things in, a, in an overzealous attempt to find cures to what ails us, right? Yes, and that, still that, do. And we still kind of do. Maybe that's even what we're kind of debating right now with these mRNA vaccines. We'll one day find out. Who knows? But that has been, that has actually been the, 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 the driving influence of man's total depravity has often worked itself out within medical technology throughout the ages of going too far and too crazy and trying to seek out what ails us. Correct? Yes. This was the one time that they decided to not do anything. By the way, what are our, what are our landfills full of these days? 
Ventilators. Ventilators. Just full of them. Never used, apparently. Yeah. So, nothing then. And 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 by the way, Remdesivir has a very, just so you know, has a pretty shaky data set associated with it. It's weird, weird. So there was nothing we could treat anything with until Gilead. I think that's their product, right? Until Gilead's new big pharma product, there was. There's nothing else that treats any other oh, upper respiratory outbreaks or viruses ever. He's got and, lots to say about that. You gave me and Aaron the most impossible task ever to just go through this in an hour, Steve. All right, let's and do let's, let's do the next one. This next clip could probably surmise the entire hour and a half. We never year. make assumptions that are dangerous to people. And the thing that really worried about me worried me about this whole thing is this series of extraordinarily dangerous assumptions. Can you imagine a senior citizen who has heart and lung disease? who recovered from cancer, has some kidney disease, is handed a diagnostic test result and says, here, you have COVID-19. Now you have your fatal diagnosis. Our recommendations, based on the assumption we can't do anything, is go home and wait it out. And when that panic and that fear and that breathlessness and that fever is so overwhelming, when you can't bear it anymore, then go to the hospital. And how do people go to the hospital? They call family members. They contaminate all their family members. They call EMS, Uber drivers, taxi drivers. Every hospitalization in America was a super spreader event. So this assumption that there's nothing we could do in giving somebody a fatal diagnosis with no instructions led to a massive amplification of cases. I'm not even going to comment on that. I, I just, I think that should probably just kind of stand on its own merit. He keeps saying over and over again, all of the experts made it worse. Yeah. What he basically just told you is they created a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. There were no, they, they, they could come up with everything, everything else we'd ever done to ever treat respiratory viruses, or at least unless the symptoms of them suddenly were thrown out the window. And therefore, we can only treat the people that are the most serious of, 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 of symptoms, which then just incentivized people to develop more and more of the most serious of symptoms. And the cycle just replenished itself, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he's describing. You know, trying to sell your home in any environment can be challenging, but especially during these unprecedented times. Bing. Thank you. Uh, that's why you want to make sure you go into the market with an agent who will come in, take charge of your situation, while remembering, though, that you are ultimately the one who is in charge. Now, where would you find such an agent? Well, the name kind of says it all, and it's easy to remember to boot. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Again, that's the website. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Agents whose track record of success has been fully verified and vetted. Otherwise, they wouldn't be listed. And uh, who knows? You might even run into a fellow Blaze TV viewer, listener, because that's where this effort began, was a connection of agents in this vast nationwide audience with people around the nation looking for an agent that they can trust. So before you go in uh, to this real estate market, make sure you go to this website, realestateagentsitrust.com. Again, that's realestateagentsitrust.com. We got time for another clip here? Uh, very, very briefly. Yeah, okay. we'll probably have to duck out. He says that we actually knew about a particular antiviral that helped with the first start. What SARS. did we know next? The timeline was very interesting. We knew from SARS-CoV-1 
SARS-1, that's 80% similar to SARS-CoV-2. We knew from studies dating back to 2006 that hydroxychloroquine, a drug that's used for lupus, it's used for rheumatoid arthritis, it's used for other rheumatologic conditions, including dry eyes, uh, as well as malaria, safe, was effective in reducing the viral replication of SARS-CoV-1. We knew that. And so United States knew that. In fact, that drug was stockpiled by the United States government, Australian government, some European governments. So hydroxychloroquine was onboarded appropriately and ready to rock and roll. In fact, many countries frontlined hydroxychloroquine for high-risk patients and still do so today. I will tell you that the next clip that we'll watch coming back from break, I, I watched this interview about half of it a week and a half ago, and this was my tap-out moment because I just got so angry. And we'll watch that clip when we come back. Why do you think I'm getting think pretty hydrox- angry right now. Yeah. Why do you think hydroxychloroquine <laughs> was so cheap com- compared to remdesivir? Maybe because we stockpiled it. Maybe because we, we stockpiled it because we actually knew it worked with the first SARS. He's telling you all this stuff that, that it was demonized for. He's telling you all upside, so much upside that we stockpiled it for not, uh, for so, it was so useful at so many things that it was worth having around just in case the thing we don't know about because it's kind of, and he said not uniquely by itself. There's all kinds of drugs that we mm-hmm. use it in combination of, but he's saying literally zero downside. We were told the opposite by the experts. In every other era of human history, we've had to stop medical scientists from throwing everything but copper bracelets at any new uh, any new malady they encountered right and yet with this one they didn't even throw out at the stuff that they knew worked that doesn't even get, even get to ivermectin which won a nobel prize in 2015 and is now being treated as a witch's brew more in a moment So who knows when and if we will uh, return to our normal state of political and cultural warfare here uh, beyond COVID stand. But remember the days of bake the cake bigot, things of that nature, right? Yeah. Um, Those things will, of course, return once COVID stand is done away with for good. Uh, in fact, poor Jack, the apparently only baker in all of Denver, Colorado, was just on our show a couple of weeks ago. He's going back to court again, right? Yeah. So uh, that's why if you're looking for somebody, if your religious liberty is imperiled and you're looking for someone with a proven track record of success in that area, how about 80%? That's a pretty good success record. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is where you want to go. They defend their clients pro bono, but that means they rely on donations from people like us. If you'd like to make one, go to adflegal.org slash Steve. Again, that's A as in Adam, D as in David, F as in Frank. Uh, adflegal.org slash Steve. Again, that's adflegal.org slash Steve. All right, let's continue on. We're looking at this interview uh, that uh, Dr. Peter McCullough from Baylor University, one of the leading medical researchers, thinkers in the country, recently gave in Dallas, Texas. We were given permission to use excerpts of this interview. Todd, you have chosen the excerpts that you want me to respond to uh, cold here in our Monday town hall. Aaron, what's the next one? 
This next one was, as I mentioned, my tap-out moment, because he described something that was so effectively memory-hold, even I completely forgot about it. So the EUA went out on hydroxychloroquine and said, you know, this EUA with language in it says, restricting hydroxychloroquine to inpatient use. Okay. And so uh, one of the first big studies out of the block was done in thousands of patients out of uh, Henry Ford. And it was great news that hydroxychloroquine was associated with a large reduction in mortality uh, if applied early. But the later it was applied in the hospital stay, it didn't look like patients were too far gone. I wrote the um, uh, 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 response to that in several um, uh, uh, publications across across the United States. And one was an op-ed in The Hill because as I saw this, um, I basically made the case that that emergency use authorization was an effective restriction. It should be lifted and we should use hydroxychloroquine wide open. Uh, and then something really terrible happened. Uh, uh, keep in mind that the Henry Ford data was very positive. We had the EUA, the U.S. had stockpiled it. The National Institutes of Health, the allergy and immunology branch, had commissioned a several thousand prospective double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in outpatients with COVID-19. They had funded the trial. They got the drug supply. They got the placebos. They uh, set up all the study centers in the United States. We were all ready to go. That was in the spring. Terrific. Everything's coming together. And then what happened was a fake paper was published in Mm -hmm. Lancet. A fake paper. Now, Lancet, the listeners should understand that Lancet is like the New England Journal of Medicine. It's one of the most prestigious medical uh, journals in the world. And when a paper is submitted, there are so many checks on validity. Where is the paper coming from? Where are the data coming from? Validating the data. Then it's sent out to peer reviewers who are independent. They check everything in the paper. They give comments about, you know, was this reported? Was that reported? What have you. There's, there's a, so many checks on papers. And then it comes back, and then there's an editorial decision made on a paper, and then it's published. That's called peer review. That ensures to the public that papers are not fake. It's very important. It ensures to the public that things are not falsified. Well, this paper had authors from Harvard, it came from a company called Surgisphere that no one really understood what this company was about. And the data was a large data set of inpatients with COVID-19 from all over the world that had in-depth drug exposure data. We, we didn't have that back then. You know, that was from December, January, February. This was just emerging. We didn't have this. The average age in that paper was 49 years old. And the paper implied that use of hydroxychloroquine was dangerous. And Lancet published this falsified paper. I, I remember this episode very well. So just to reset the arc on hydroxychloroquine, it was originally proposed by, um, was it Didier Rayalt? He was one of the original ones, that's yes. for sure, the French yep. virologist. The French virologist, he had put out some information in, in the wintertime just as COVID was beginning to wreak havoc in places like Italy and other places, that there were some initial positive results of this. And then one of the dates early on in one of the very first White House Coronavirus Task Force briefings, President Trump cited that study 
And then, of course, this thing goes on to get discredited, including by Fauci himself, even though, as Dr. McCullough notes there, Fauci's own bureaucracy was actually lining up stockpiles for its usage. While thought, while Fauci, because that NIAID that he cited, that's Fauci's specific department under at, at NIH. So while Fauci was out in headlines contradicting President Trump on hydroxychloroquine, his department was actually mobilizing it as an early onset treatment. I do remember this study because what had happened is after this study came out, Switzerland had an aggressive prophylaxis program with, um, with hydroxychloroquine. They ceased doing it. Their death rate spiraled. And then they, and then they decided to redeploy it and their death rate stabilized. I remember tweeting about this study at the time. And I was like, looks like we may have the definitive results on hydroxychloroquine. Because I remember the Michigan study, that Henry Ford Hospital's in Detroit. They were hit, that was the hospital hit the hardest in Michigan by COVID. This study ended up being retracted, was totally and completely discredited. It's a complete scam. He's telling you they used data sets and models from, from, uh, from patient treatments that didn't exist yet because we were just at the early they ascending stages. impossible to have because yes, of the timing. You could not have had this level of, of layered, stratified patient assessment because we were dealing with this on the fly in real time. That stuff takes months, if not years, to acquire. Nefarious much? Yes, and they just ran it verbatim until several scientists called them out for it later in the year, and they eventually retracted that study. There's quite a bit about this moment in our book, Fauci and Bargain. Just evil. No other word for it. Just flat out, it's not malfeasance, it's malevolence. Note he said the amount of, the amount of layers it has to go through to be cited as peer-reviewed, and there's bypassed all of that. I ask, I've asked this before, let me ask it again. If they didn't, if they weren't, let's say, if, if they were specifically, we're not saying they were, but if they were specifically attempting to discredit any and all treatments in order to create a marketplace for their experimental mRNA vaccines that were not yet ready to come to market, what would they have done differently? Anybody? They'd have done all these same things, all of them. So he mentioned earlier about some of the um, treatments that he's recommended. He talks about a paper that he put out as of, I think it was August. There were tens of thousands of uh, journal entries from around the world on COVID-19. His was the only paper, the only journal entry to actually recommend a course of treatment he talks about the reaction that he got from doctors. I may have just been the strongest and the most courageous doctor in the world to do that, but I did it, and the feedback I was getting was tremendous. It's like, of course, this makes sense. I'm so glad this this got into the, the, the literature. It came out in electronic print in um, uh, August, and then it came into hard print in January. When it hit January and it landed in all the medical libraries in the world, that's when things really heated up. And I do have to tell you, that I got letters to the editor that came into the American Journal of Medicine. And Joe, Dr. Joe Alpert out of uh, Arizona is the editor. 
Joe has let every one of those letters come to me for a response. The tenor of the letters is quite interesting. And they've come from Duke University. Uh, they've come from uh, McGill, from Monash University in Australia. They've come from uh, Brazil. The tenor of the letters is, Dr. McCullough, you can't do this. You can't treat COVID-19 patients. And it's the most interesting thing. My response is, doctor, please have courage. Let's, let's, let's do away with therapeutic nihilism. Let's join together and treat COVID-19 patients compassionately. He's just telling you they're in a cult. They're in a spirit of the age cult, did basically. You, did you, I wish we would have thought of this. Did you hear that phrase that he uttered there? Therapeutic nihilism. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Guy's smart. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, here's a question. If there was nothing they could do for him, then why do we have to shut everything down and empty the hospitals? If there was nothing we could do, right? Mm -hmm. If there was nothing we could do, then, then why were we ever going to have hospitals overrun? Like I could see a system where hospitals are overrun with every mildly symptomatic person in mm -hmm. there getting a breathing treatment or something, right? Or a blood gas mm -hmm. or something. But if only the most serious of cases were ever going to be treated, then how are this, how is the system ever going to be overrun then? So we, so since the only though, so let's remember what was going on at this time last year, we were in a recession because of the, we had, we had bottomed out, created our healthcare industry. So why, if we weren't going to treat anybody except the most serious of cases, why was there ever going to be a danger of the hospitals being overrun then? Why? And then, of course, we shut them all down except for COVID. And then what happened? Since we were only going to treat the most serious of cases, it was... They Hospitals were, were out of business. They went out of business in a lot of places. There were layoffs in even more places than that. Next clip. So this next clip, you remember CNN's John Berman trying to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Yale's Harvey Rich, Dr. Oh, Harvey yes. Rich. Uh, Rich One of the more infamous episodes of last year. Hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. And Merman's continued mantra was, well, where's the randomized controlled trial? Where's the randomized controlled trial? It's the gold standard, the randomized controlled trial. Dr. McCullough in this clip is asked, how do you make decisions about treatment with no large-scale trials? Here's his we response. We have actually a law in America. It's called the 21st Century Cures Act. And what this says is that the FDA and doctors and others trying to decide on treatment evaluate the totality of information, including that little anecdote about your mom and the, and the caretaker, as well as case series, large prospective cohort studies, retrospective cohort studies, hospital studies, outpatient studies, and then large prospective randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials. But in a virus, Single drugs themselves are very difficult to prove. Like if, if we required that for HIV, we'd have no treatment. Mm. HIV, we quickly realized we need three or four or five drugs. Everyone understands this. With COVID-19, I never thought a single drug was going to work. Hydroxychloroquine, no, not alone, but in combination. And it was that thinking. It takes kind of superior thinking that somehow doctors just lost their ability to think. Mm. That's comforting. It's like your mind. We, we've just scratched the surface on this, folks. He's he's telling. 
when we talk a cult, people think it's cult, a dumb sheep. Let well, it's for dumb sheep. But the cults get worse the smarter people yes, they get. Do. Yeah, they do. You go back to the we did the conversation about the Hailbop comment, mm-hmm. or Hailbop Hailbop cult, I should say. And it what what one of the cult experts says in the documentary is typically the more affluent and more educated you are, the more likely you are to fall into one of these things. Because it's the, the, the premise of secret knowledge only a special group of people get access to. And then since you're one of the special people, your ego doesn't want to admit you've, mm-hmm. been, you've been duped, mm-hmm. right? So you just dig in deeper and deeper. It's more special, more acquired, um, more specialized. Next clip. This is the final one uh, that we'll, we'll play here. He's asked if he's received any threats or comeuppance for his stance on uh, treating coronavirus. My personal situation, professional situation, is a position of strength. And those who have attempted in any way uh, to pressure, coerce, or threaten me with reprisal have paid an extraordinary price. And I think that's an important message to get out there. There is a position of strength uh, based on principles of compassionate care and of the Hippocratic Oath and of the fiduciary relationship that a doctor has to a patient and a prominent doctor has to a population that supersedes all of those other ill intents. And what I say is, bring them on. That's not biblical, though, Steve, to go back to last week. I want to make a broad point about what we just watched, particularly this last clip. We've had a lot of conversations on the show, particularly in the last year. Where are the men at? Mm -hmm. And there's this idea that Manning up is a is a is a persona or is a temperament. That guy doesn't look like he's doing he's out doing you at the pull up bar. Fair, sure. That guy doesn't look like he's 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 benching the two twenty five that they do at the NFL draft combine. Fair. He said he's a very good runner along the lines, yes. so he's fit in that respect. If he walked into a room, you wouldn't immediately have a sense until he began speaking. But you wouldn't, that's not the guy that when he walks through, you think, okay, that's the alpha here, right? right? But he is. But he is. It's not any of those things. It is about a confidence in your courage of conviction because you understand that the price of not following through is higher than the price of the blowback for following through. That is that moment right there that we that last clip you just played, mm-hmm. one of the most badass clips we have ever played on this show. That's just a, and that's from a bookworm nerd. A, a lot of people would describe him as that. And his last, and his response was, "I give zero f's." It was Nehemiah time right yes. there. Yes, you will pay yeah, the price. You will pay the price for coming <laughs> after me. That's that's a man right there. It's not about biceps or any of that other stuff man sometimes it is if you want to be like a navy seal okay but most of the time it isn't most of the time it isn't that's what it looks like for the that that's that last that was a great clip to end it on right there more of that and you just might get your country back more men with that persona and you just might get it back john 317 This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.